Hi, I'm Jamar McNeil of iHeartRadio's Chum 104.5 Morning Show. And I'm Anne-Marie Medawake from CTV's Your Morning. Hey there, I'm Candy Palmiter from the Mi'kmaq Nation, the Wabanaki Confederacy, and I'm talking to you today from the unceded territory of the Mississauga of the Credit, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat people. Welcome to a brand new podcast called From Where We Stand, conversations on race and mental health in partnership with Bell Let's Talk. I think one thing we could say for certain is that uh, the past year or so, the way we talk about race and racism may not have shifted, but the places we're talking about them have changed. And this is one of those places that we're happy to have that conversation. Daily interactions are different now. Uh, and, you know, we're talking about race openly, not just with our family and friends, but also people we work with and in public spaces. Yeah. And like most things with race, it hits differently when you're a racialized person, right? It hits you in a different way. Uh, something may, that may seem like an offhand comment somewhere in the office can sit with you for the day and you take it home. How do you process it? And who do you talk to about it other than family and friends. I think that's one of the things I like about this podcast is we're not only going to be talking to people about their stories, about what they've experienced, about their struggles and challenges, but also we are providing help. We're going to be speaking to mental health experts that look and sound and come from the same places that people come from so that we are offering help that fits. And one of the beautiful things about this moment in these conversations is that we are coupling, rightfully so, these social struggles and how they affect our mental health. Very few times in the past have we ever looked at it in that in that way. And that's one of the reasons why I actually want to do this podcast because it, now we get to highlight mental health challenges within the BIPOC community because it, it varies within each race, within ethnic groups. We're not a monolith. Even within specific racial groups, there are very big differences on how we're processing and, and being affected by the way race affects us personally. So uh, this is this is great, a broad conversation that I'm excited to have and share in my mental health journey with uh, the professionals and my colleagues right here, you all. So this is great. Yeah, I feel like I want to shout out Dr. Wanda Thomas-Bernard from Dalhousie University School of Social Work, who over a decade ago published a paper on the fact that um, doing anti-racist work affects your health physically and mentally, and that it's never acknowledged in the workplace, and particularly people who do anti-racist work within organizations where it's your job to call out the very people who are signing your paycheck. It takes a toll mentally and physically. Wanda has been sounding that alarm now for a decade, and it's wonderful that we're now all waking up to the fact that that's a reality. That should be right in our job descriptions. We were talking about having these conversations, but in different spaces. We have them within community, within friends, within family, but we can have it shared amongst all of ourselves now. And that idea of like code switching, it's exhausting. And I don't know that if you are not a BIPOC person who isn't code switching all the time, you don't know that extra burden you carry through the day and then what you have to take off when you come home. Uh, and and, and I, f I think that that has been exhausting mentally and physically for people for a long time. And I know in friends of mine, it's such a relief to be able to not have to do that in some spaces anymore. It's also important to note, however, that the podcast, even though it might be therapeutic to listen to these stories, it's definitely not a form of medical treatment and should not be seen as a substitute for therapy or medication. So if you or someone you know is struggling with their mental health, please consult with a mental health professional. You can also head over to our show's notes or visit letstalk.bell.ca for helpline numbers. Canada recently announced it planned to welcome a little more than 400,000 immigrants in 2021 to become permanent residents. And those numbers 
are set to go up in the next couple of years. We are a land of immigrants. We welcome people from all over the globe to start their new life here. And you can see that in a lot of our major cities right across the country, like Toronto, which is known as one of the most diverse cities in the world. But what's the mental toll on mental health that comes with moving to a new country? I mean, Jamar, you had this experience recently. (laughs) Oh, yeah. And it's crazy (laughs) because, you know, Americans try to, you know, sometimes think of Canada or Toronto as like the 51st state. It's just Canada or whatever. But no, it's a whole different country. And yeah, there there was a learning curve and an adjustment period for me for sure. Yeah. And I think not all Canadians get on board with the idea of immigration, which really makes me crazy as a First Nations person, because I say 450 years ago, my people, the Mi'kmaq specifically, because we were the first to have contact, we set the immigration policy. We opened our arms wide and we said, welcome. We set that policy 450 years ago. That's why everyone's here. So act accordingly. You know, we have this reputation around the world for being nice. Canadians are so nice. They're always saying sorry. They're so nice. But, you know, I think that's what a big shock is to people when they come here and then start to experience racism or discrimination is that our our global brand is being nice and open arms and welcoming. But, you know, the reality is when people get here, they they are going to interact with racism. They are going to face it. And I think sometimes that makes it even more shocking because they're not expecting it because it feels like it comes out of nowhere. And, you know, it's really tough mentally. I would prefer the guy in the white hood that's just like in my face telling me who he is, because I can clearly point at that and say, see, this is what I'm dealing with. It is that nice racism. It is that subtle under the radar stuff that makes us feel like we are going crazy. And that is very hard to describe and point out to people because that person's so nice. But they, you know, if you're not, if you're not experiencing it, you're not seeing it. Yeah, so so nice is just kind of, in in terms of what we're talking about, a lot of times just a code word for like not aggressive, hmm. right? You're not going to yes. get cussed out in the middle of the street and told hmm. about yourself or, you know, you know, it, to your face at least. Um, you, you might get a smile. Uh, you might get uh, a soft voice, you know, maybe slow, slower talker. But um, I don't know, niceness... I see it from two perspectives. You know, as an American, we we, we don't really put a high, uh, <laughs> uh, what's the word I'm looking for? High Equity value. Ni- yeah, it's like niceness is kind of like, you know, whatever. <laughs> yeah, you're nice. Great. But here, niceness seems to be uh, the, the the order of things. And that seems hmm. to be a very big metric. If, if you're nice, like you move up the bar in the social ladder. And if you want to make a living, then you have to figure out how to navigate that in the workplace. And the further up the ladder you go, the more subtle it gets and the more difficult it gets. The kind of racism I dealt with working at, say, Tim Hortons was completely different than the kind of racism I dealt with dealing working in a law firm. That racism was so cunning and so um, subtle and so damaging. So knowing that and having going to the workplace every day and having to manage all of that mentally, that takes a toll because everything sure you do, does. everything you say, you're second guessing all the interactions. You're trying to measure like, wait a second, was that or was that not? Or well, how, how is this being taken? Or what, am I, did I hear that right? It's, it's a lot of uh, calculating in your, in your mind where you're supposed to just be able to you know, be there and, and free up and just work. 
You know and in mean? a workplace setting, that idea that you're not as smart. I hear that from from new Canadians all the time. The thing that's most difficult is when people mm. assume because you have a skin that's not white, because you have an accent, you're not as smart. And so that idea of treating you like maybe you couldn't handle it, you're not as capable, you're not as learned, uh, that piece is so affronting to people who have come here from from other nations. And all that to say that we are going to speak to some new Canadians today. And after we've spoken to them, we're also going to have a mental health expert come in to tell us uh, how it is that we can all cope with these situations. Our first guest moved to Canada from India when she was about 10 years old. Navigating life in a small town in Ontario where there is very little diversity, Arzu Multani often found herself wondering whether she fit in. Things only worsened in undergrad. It started with panic attacks, then depression, and eventually a breakdown that may have just saved her life. Arzu, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me, and thank you for giving me the chance to share my story. Oh, that that honor is all ours. Take us back to those early years when you first landed in Canada and you're in a little town where pretty much everybody's white. What were some of those earliest experiences like? The early experiences were very hard because you look around and you don't see anybody who looks like you, thinks like you, acts like you, and you're a child. And um, it was very, like you said, lack of diversity was definitely there. Um, I... Now that I look back at it as an adult and everything that I've gone through, I can definitely see how my childhood contributed to that and the lack of diversity in the town that I grew up in with maybe there was maybe like three or four families that were colored and everyone else was white. And were your parents around much that you could talk this stuff out with? My parents weren't around that much in my childhood. They were were first generation immigrants, like you said, and they were working a lot. So it was really hard. I mean, I remember, you know, there. I used to feel so bad sometimes coming home from school and them not being there. Whereas, you know, my my counterparts, different kids, they'd be getting picked up from school. So it was really hard mm. to not have them around. And were you able to make friends at school? Like, was it mostly the adults or was it the kids, too, in town that made you feel outside? It was definitely the kids, too. Yeah, they they were definitely very, there was a lot of bullies. And I feel like mm. um, the racism was so deeply embedded within them and maybe their family structures or the way that the town worked that maybe they didn't realize it because we were all so young. Like, our, you know, um, there was a particular incidence and I, I remember it was in grade five and it was, it was in the gym class and there it, it was probably like nine or 10 at that time. And this girl just came up to me and she pulled on, tugged on my shirt in the middle of class and called me a bloody packy. And I still remember mm. just being so shocked and taken aback by that. But it's, it was everywhere. I can't believe how lonely you must have felt. And the fact that you would get through all that and then go to university despite what that public school experience was like. But you've, you've noticed a, a couple of changes when you got to university and how you were dealing with it. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so when I got to university, um, I started noticing that I was spending a lot more time with myself and not around other people. Um, 
even starting in my first year, I noticed signs of depression and anxiety, but I never felt that I was um, comfortable enough or I guess I didn't even realize it myself of how bad it was um, because I just thought that was that's how university life was. And I thought that it was me. I thought I was the problem. And I understand it got so bad that you eventually stepped away from school. Mm-hmm. I had to take time off of school in my fourth year in 2019. How'd your parents react to that? They were not happy. They, I think that they didn't really have a clue as to what was happening in terms of my health, and neither did I. Like I knew how I did know that the symptoms were bad. I was suffering a lot, but I didn't even know the extent of to to what it got. But their reaction to me leaving school was, it was really rough. It was not supportive at all. So in in those moments, like when you made the decision to leave for a little bit, did you know by then that you were you were having some mental health issues or or was that such a foreign concept? I did know I, I it was it got to the point where I would not want to get out of bed or go to school or attend my classes or go to work. And I even tried to lighten my course load, went part time and it still didn't help. So I just remember being so stuck in what was happening, but I knew that I had to step away for some time to be okay. And in that time in June of 2019, when you feel like you completely broke down, what were those two weeks like? They were very, they were very hard. I experienced a lot of distress, um, a lot of emotional pain, just things coming up, trauma coming up from my childhood, other events, lots of crying. It was, it was really painful. And, um, it, it was really devastating as well because I thought that I would take that time off. I I remember I left university in March of that year. I thought I would take my time off, get better, but it just got worse and worse. And being at home didn't help either coming back from university. And then in June, things really hit the fan and It got really out of control. Did your parents try to help or your family try to help in any way? They tried. um, They seeked medical help and the police came instead of the, (gasps) yeah, instead of the medical care. And I was beaten by the police, actually, like really badly. Okay, wait, back up. So the police came to your house, like responding to a call? Yeah, it was, um, I just remember being super distressed and going through like the most painful and emotional time of my life. And um, all of a sudden, it this is happening for a few days. So there was definitely signs I could see why my family was very worried. But I, right. they in, in their response, and even when we still talk about it now, I mean, it's been two years, it's um, still painful to discuss, but they were seeking medical help and instead of the um, paramedics showing up, the, the cops showed up to my house and they they beat me up. They, it got very violent in terms of their response. And that's how I... Like one cop, two cops? No, there was about 10 of them. 10 cops show up for a, a young woman in mental distress? Yeah. And then physically beat you? I still have a lot of injuries in, on my body from that. Oh, my 
goodness. So how did this all um, resolve out in the end? So I was taken to the psych ward in Brampton. And that's how that's how I ended up there. I was taken by the police and um, it got better. Things got better when I was there. It, like you said, it was basically a second life and that's how I treated it. Um, I got the care that I needed. I got the attention that I needed. I, a lot of the issues that were happening during the breakdown were discussed with the doctors. And um, I really do treat it, as I said, like a second life because I had gone through so much pain and trauma at that time. That coming out of that, I I was like, whoa, I lost so many pieces of myself. But in the process of healing from that, I have found one of the biggest things um, that I, you know, I discuss in my story, but also I've written an article about it too, is um, my cultural identity. And that's why when we were talking about the things about growing up, um, my recovery happened mostly in Brampton. And I feel like that was very important for me to know that I can be around my own people, wear my own clothes, eat my own food, and be proud of who I am. Mm. So how are you now, and how are things with the family? Everything is going really well now. I've come a really long way. I've done lots of therapies, lots of alternative medicine, natural healing modalities. They've been very supportive with it, and um, they've just completely shifted their entire perspective as well that is so good to hear yeah and I can only imagine how hard it is for you to sit here with a a relative stranger and to recount those things but you know doing that is helping somebody right now who's listening who's in a bad spot and I want to ask you as my last question what would you say to that person that's listening right now that's having a tough time both with family and culture and trying to figure it all out and is in is in a dark place what would you say to them i would say that you have the answer that we ourselves hold so much power and i think that with mental health especially um you really really when it comes down to it you know on the hard days the dark days you are alone but I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean that we ourselves alone have the power to be able to go and get help or go and talk to someone else or know that you want better. So it's definitely inside of you that we can go and start a new life. Good advice indeed. I wish you continued good health and happiness, Arzu. Thank you so much for today. Thank you. Wow. Um, okay, so picture, if you will, John and Jane Smith with no discernible accent. Call the call nine one one and ask for a paramedic for their little girl. You think ten cops are going to show up? Wow. And end up physically abusing and John and Jane Smith's uh, daughter. That I mean, I just don't hear those stories. But you know, we hear those stories, especially because she was in crisis. Like, and as a family, what do you do? You've called what who you think is supposed to be there to help. And then you watch this happen. Yeah. I just, I think about her parents too. The other yeah. thing that stood out to me about her story was in the piece afterwards where she said when she went back into her community and then finally felt like she could eat the food she wanted and, and just that sense of belonging. And it just speaks to how 
out of place you feel on top of everything else and and looking for help and not in not knowing that you know can you imagine what her parents reaction were so you call for help in a country that has help and healthcare available and you get 10 cops and then uh you know i'm assuming it, either a trip to the hospital or some sort of intervention after that but you know if you're new to the country you're like that's the help like is it better to keep it quiet at this point all i kept thinking about was if that was me and that was my family, knowing the men in my family, my father and my brothers would have jumped those cops. And then I would have been beat up, I would have been tased, and I would have lost all the men in my family to jail. Mm. Right. Escalation at its finest, right? Like the uh-huh. complete escalate. This is one of the big topics um in the BIPOC community and in the mental health community, subsequent to George Floyd. And like a lot of the cases where we're we're wondering, is it appropriate for police to be responding to mental health crisis calls? Are they equipped to respond to those calls properly? Is there something, some other intervention that could happen that doesn't involve law enforcement and now rather a crisis intervention specialist? And this is a classic example of that, that that probably 10 people for a mental health crisis, like anyone would tell you that that's, that doesn't sound appropriate. Our next guest also took her mental health into her own hands by seeking professional help against the popular belief of what her culture practices. We'll hear from author and entrepreneur Petrona Joseph next. The first time I knew something was off with me was at the age of 23. I started noticing days where I'd be glued to the bed and can think of nothing else but suicide. But as a strong black woman, I played it off. And I worked harder to be better until the depression came back again. That's Petrona Joseph reading a passage from her new book, Stigmatized, Breaking the Silence and Demystifying Mental Illness. It's all about her life, sharing personal moments, and giving advice about how she deals with the ups and downs of her own mental health journey. Her goal is to offer a safe space for people who are going through the same thing. Welcome to the show, Petrona. How are you doing? I'm wonderful. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for for, uh, sharing your story with us. Quite a journey as well. Quite a journey. So uh, tell us, why did you write the book? Primarily for family members and friends to know how it feels in the mind and body of someone suffering from depression and anxiety. I like the fact that in writing this book, you can make it clear and tangible to people who may not understand, especially coming from the culture as a Caribbean person myself. This doesn't get spoken about in our culture. And, you know, you get written off as, oh, that's a mad person. You know, they use words like that, like, <laughs> oh, you just went crazy. Oh, them gone mad or something like that. And there's <laughs> yes. really no <laughs> breakdown of, well, all right, if, even if that's what we're calling it, what is actually happening? So that's mm-hmm. so powerful that you actually decided to uh, to document that. Yes, yes. When when did you realize that you didn't feel good mentally? Uh, I would say it started around the age of twenty three. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's important to note that you can have mental illness depending on the type and kind and spectrum, but some of it is also an onset. So for me, around age twenty three was really the age where I noticed uh, my behavioral patterns started changing. I started suffering with uh, very intense suicidal thoughts. Uh, No longer was the life of the party as I would normally have been. 
And um, as I noted in the book, I started developing different kinds of quirks. So for me, <laughs> you know, of course I brushed it off. Oh, this will just go away. Oh, you know, I'm not strong enough. You know, let me drink my green tea. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Let me toughen up. I'm a strong black woman, you know. And but it just kept coming back. And at what point did you realize that it, it wasn't enough to just brush it off, drink the tea, and you know, burn some sage or whatever the things they tell us to do? What point did you decide, okay, this requires some professional help? Okay, I was thirty thousand feet in the air on a bridge on my way to work. It was a bridge that I normally take to go to work. Mm-hmm. And that morning I had the worst panic attack of my life. I felt like my brain was going to split in two. If you've ever had a severe, uh, it's, it's, it's not an anxiety attack. It's a panic attack where you have a peak for about five to 10 minutes where you think that you're about to die. When that happened to me, I had no choice. I ended up at the hospital that day. And after all these years, I took my first pill actually that day. Wow. Mm -hmm. Um, You you identify as a Trinidadian American who's moved to Canada. Mm -hmm. Um, I can relate to this completely as a Jamaican American who's moved to Canada. (laughs) Good, Um, right. uh, So talk to us about those changes and how that affects one's mental health, once again, something that really doesn't get spoken about out loud. T- tell us about how that works in your mind. Well, for me, uh, it was it didn't hit me till we started getting bullied in New York mm-hmm. because um, I, I may tear up a little bit. Sorry, this is a, it, 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 it comes to get me, you know, as we say in French. Um, you know, we we wore mismatched clothes because if you're from the Canadian, if you're from the Caribbean, you know, and you're a first immigrant, first generation immigrant, you know, money is not accessible. So everything was um, hand-me-downs. Everything was secondhand. So when you're going to school in North America and nothing matches, <laughs> you're going to be bullied, especially in Long Island where I grew up. Okay. Oh, yeah. You, you know exactly what I was talking about. I, I went through it, Patrona. I went through Did it. Did you? Of course. I mean, you know, and you know, the you know, New York is the the, the home of trying to be fresh. You got to look mm-hmm. fresh, but when you're not looking fresh, you know, you're a target. And and they will let you know. Mm-hmm. But you know, we had the adults around us to stick up for us, you know. And so I, I, I was able to carry my self-esteem all the way through to Canada. Canada is where things really started shaking up for me because I had never been called a racial slur in New York City. Here we were being called racial slurs. We were being um, ostracized. I was always the last to be picked um, for team sports. Um, so we were about three, four persons of color in the school that we went to in a predominantly um, Caucasian neighborhood in, uh, you know, in, in the West Island of Montreal. And so that meant for me as a black woman at the time, um, unconsciously, I was constantly being told, even in university, I remember taking a university class and the teacher called all of the Caucasian men, 
She said, go in a circle. She called all of the Caucasian women. They went in the circle outside of the Caucasian men. Then, you know, and, and then it went all the way down. And the black women were the last people in the circle till this day that is forever marked to me. And she says, so this is how you know, this is how society sees you. You are the last. And so my fighting nature, I, I said, you know what? I'm going to change the narrative. But then, you know, it, it doesn't matter how much money you're being paid. You're always being told you're a black girl. You're, you know, you're this, you're, you know, and I was always the first to try to step out. So in fighting my own depression and anxiety, and in fighting to stay afloat mentally, I had to put up the armor of, I am strong. I'm going to get this done by all means possible. But for me, when I hit that bridge, that, that moment on the bridge where I had the panic attack, it was an accumulation of all the experiences I had ever had in my life. That, you know, at that moment, I had to face myself and I had to face all of my issues. And that's where my healing started, that moment. When I took my first medication, when I took my first antidepressant, I remember the feeling of feeling so alive. And I said, this is how people normally feel. I was able to wake up, make my bed, go to work, dance again, dance to my soca. <laughs> and I'm forever grateful for that moment on the bridge because if if that didn't happen to me, I would have still thought that, oh no, oh no, I, I don't need antidepressants. I'm 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 a strong black woman. I don't need that. Thank goodness for that clarity that that, <laughs> that you achieved in in those moments and moments subsequent. Could you talk a little bit about like your family because uh, you know the Caribbean experience is <laughs> it's unique. Mm-hmm. Um, when you were having these. Um, these moments of crises, did you feel like your family members responded um, well to you? Did you feel like that, that was that there or, or was it absent or what was that experience? There was no support. I was mm. told that, you know, you're in North America, you know, mm. you have it easy. When I was your age, I was going down to the river because we had no water, you know, right, with the right. accent. So then you start feeling guilty. You know, what Walk am I complaining about? With no shoes on and empty, right? There, right? right. <laughs> so, and, and this also adds to the burden because then you feel like maybe, maybe I'm just weak and mm-hmm. not, you know, uh, maybe I, something's wrong with me, right? You feel flawed and unappreciative, uh, you know? And also you feel like you're not part of the culture because I've, I've, under, I've felt that way too. Like when you start to show that there may be a little crack in the armor, oh, mm-hmm. you're, you're not, you're not. You're not a really hardy because you're not strong, right? Or something like that. Wow, that's that's you have an amazing that's a Jamaican accent right there. That's on I mean, point. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I mean, Manayad man for real. You, you understand? But yeah. I love it, yes. I, I hear but I know you. what you mean. I know what you mean, yes. I yes. hear you too. I hear you too. Yeah. So yeah. so uh Patrona, where are you right now in your mental health journey at this point? I've been off medication for about a year. Mm-hmm. And in as much as at, at the beginning, it was very, very difficult to be weaned off because um, I had to relearn. But then it was also an opportunity for me to uh, measure my healing, right? Mm-hmm. And so measuring my healing, I give examples as um, 
I wasn't able to walk over overpasses. So for me, before I left my house, I needed to examine everywhere I'm going on Google Map, make sure I, I zoom in. Do I have any bridges? Do I have anywhere that will trigger me <laughs> and then wow. leave the house? Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever gotten to the bottom of why the bridge thing? Like, is there something, is there a specific uh, memory or trauma that, that was associated with bridges? Or do you understand why that is? You must be very intuitive because no one has really ever asked me that um, outside of therapy. Wow. I'm, I'm a little bit, uh, wow. Okay. I, I wow. hope it's not too personal, but it's just really interesting, especially coming from New York where there's a bridge like every three blocks. Like you have to cross right. so many bridges in New York City just to live. Mm-hmm. You understand? Like, so I just, is there something you can share about the bridge experience? Wow. Um, I discovered it in in a hypnosis theory I paid for. Um, I wanted to be hypnotized. So I did my six sessions. And one of the things we uncovered, which I forgot, was when I was younger, I used to take another bridge to go to work. And when the depression started creeping up on me, I used to say to myself, I'm going to drive my car over the bridge. That's how I'm going to commit suicide. Wow. Yeah. That was many, many years, you know, so, so we kept trying to dig it. What, what is it? What, you know, it's not an accident. It's not this. I'd never been in an accident in my life. Thank God. And so we, we went all the way back and I was like, oh my God, I remember saying that. Yeah. That's where it came from. Wow. Mm-hmm. Therapy. Mm-hmm. It, it, so listen, if you're listening to this podcast, you need to go to therapy. I think everyone needs to go to therapy. <laughs> I go to them. therapy. I go to therapy. <laughs> Trust me. And, and because in therapy, you uncover these things that without that type of conversation, that specific type of conversation, you're not even going to, you wouldn't even know like where are these things coming from, but that's incredible. Thank you for sharing that. Really. Yes. And I'm, I'm really, I'm really, in, I'm, I'm like, wow, that's, that's deep because for you to ask me that question, that's, that's very, you're very much aligned. Very and, much aligned. Or been to a lot of therapy. <laughs> so, <laughs> that too. Sorry. That's therapy, but <laughs> that thank too, you. That too. <laughs> Petrona, th- thank you. You're big up yourself, sister. Yeah? Yes, Big man, up yourself. Yes, and man. thank you so much for sharing your story and, and your experience with everybody because it's very relatable. You're not the only one. Thank you. Thank you. My favorite thing about that whole conversation, home means a lot to me, home, family, community, place where I come mm-hmm. from. My favorite part of that whole conversation, Jamar, was hearing you switch into dialect and then hearing the <laughs> two of you first make that New York connection and then make yeah. that Jamaica connection. And I instantly felt like as soon as we're done here, I'm calling home. I'm homesick. It was so nice. Uh, this is one of the things about you know coming from an immigrant family that a lot of people don't even realize give credit to or even talk about i mean just being able to speak in dialect you know mm-hmm. even between islands i'm from i'm jamaican so we speak patois they speak like a, a trinidadian creole but just even being able to have those conversations and know that you're in a safe place where no one's going to judge the way you say the word thing or ting like it's all good mm. you're just knowing that you know you're not going to sound less educated because you're using dialect they're just gonna you're just gonna sound like you know you're part of the family um, it it just a, it's a relief mentally. It really is. I love that, Jamar. And you can see, I mean, you can tell even how in therapy that would be so 
helpful yep. that if somebody can relate to how you're speaking or can speak back to you in your own language and that level of understanding, like even her whole, you could just hear the relaxation Everything that changed. came over her as Everything soon as she changes. knew it was like to like, yeah. 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 Um, I also, I thought a point that she brought up that's interesting, and these are the small things that become big things, but when she talked about her clothes weren't the same. <laughs> and I remember being... Uh, my older sister, who's eight years older than I am, talking about coming to Canada. So she came when she was almost nine and saying how all of a sudden you realized your clothes weren't right and how that automatically just puts you in the off. Like all of those little things that we don't think about, all those subtle, subtle cues that are subtle cues to other yeah. people that maybe we feel like we don't And at a young in. age too, right? Where you're already having identity mm -hmm. issues just because, you know, adolescence. But then, you know, you put the outward appearance on top of it is, is a lot. It's a lot. Talking about, guys, all of these experiences, uh, our next guest deals with the struggles of being an immigrant and the effects that it had on her mental health. Very similar story to what we've just heard. Uh, hers is public and in an outspoken way. That's her therapy. And she is coming on. Amy is amazing. She's going to explain how she made advocacy part of her therapy. Well, when she first immigrated from Hong Kong to Canada, Amy looked forward to living in what everyone called a nice country. She went to university, she worked towards fulfilling her dream, but along the way, she couldn't help but feel targeted at times to deal with the mental burden of racism. So she turned to activism, fighting and advocating for equality on a national level. Joining us now is Amy Go. She's the president of the Chinese Canadian National Council for Social Justice. Great to have you with us, Amy. Hi, Emery. Thank you for having me. Uh, before we talk to present day and the work you're doing now, I want to go back to your experience. And for extra context for people, the 70s was a time when the Prime Minister of Canada at that time, uh, you know, Prime Minister Trudeau Sr., went around and did almost this global tour toward selling Canada as the place to come. He believed strongly in immigration and diversity in the country. And so he traveled around Asia and Southeast Asia talking about this great country of Canada. It's when my parents chose to come from Sri Lanka. So Prime Minister Trudeau at the time is talking multiculturalism and promoting Canada as a great example of that. You arrive in the 1980s. What was your experience like then? Trudeau is a very well-known figure, for sure, in Asia. He was the prime minister who went into China, right? From the first uh, sort of so-called Western world to, to go to China and met with uh, uh, the, the chairman at the time. Mm. And so, uh, and I grew up in Hong Kong, but it was definitely huge news, huge news in Asia, having Trudeau going to China and having, and, and actually generally Trudeau is well known in a sense of promoting the multiculturalism. So I came right away to go into university. So I have to say university is a secluded environment. And uh, so, uh, but there are, of course, there are many times, and at the time, I, I spoke English well enough uh, after having an English education in Hong Kong, but the, the accent, right? I had this weird 
Hong Kong Cantonese, you know, accent, a bit of then British sort of like because <laughs> we were forced to listen to BBC Queen's English when mm. we were growing up in <laughs> Hong Kong. So with this weird accent. A lot of Commonwealth kids have that experience, Queen's English. Yes, 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 yes. So so there were, you know, I've been asked many times, like, where are you from? Where are you from? Right? Constantly. And at the time as a student, actually I did not feel that was anything wrong with that question so you know what I usually would respond where are you from and these are like white classmates of mine and I went to went into psychology there were very few people of color or racialized students in psychology <laughs> so most of my classmates were white and I would just ask them so they asked me where I'm from and I asked them where they're from and they would tell me you know the city or Toronto or St. Catharines or wherever they're from and the cities that I've never been at the time or sometimes <laughs> never heard of but you know uh, but but the but that where are you from that question actually uh, the meaning of that got very different as I uh, graduated, as I started to work in Canada, as I developed my career and my activism, that whole question turned into something quite different. Explain that a little more for me. What changed? Yes. Right. So as I, of course, become more aware and and, and really experienced, you know, exclusion, uh, the first time was, you know, looking for a house in Toronto and we got to that looking for a room, actually. I was renting a room and knock on the door. We made an appointment with the landlord and knock on the door and <laughs> nobody answered. We looked around, looked around, walked around and and then we saw this white man looking at us, staring at us from the window, just wouldn't open the door. At the time, mm-hmm. we were just shocked. We jumped, right? We, we jumped. What is this, you know? And had still no clue. Why wouldn't he open the door? We made an appointment. I wanted to see the room. I wanted to, to rent the room. But why wouldn't he open the room? You know, open the door to these two Asian-looking young women at the time. And, and still didn't click in. You know, still then we suspected something was wrong, and and actually his face that and uh, still sort of in sort of implanted in my brains now. I can mm. still remember, and I still remember that shock that we encountered, and then couldn't name it. But afterwards, you know, when we encounter, when as I developed a deeper understanding of being Asian and being racialized in Canada, what it means. Then the question of where are you from is a loaded question. Mm-hmm. It became a loaded question because it means whoever is asking that question did not accept that I'm from here, that I am always a foreigner to him or her. That story illustrates so many things, Amy, but in particular, the fact that you can remember his face. You know, mm. you always remember that I would describe it as that first sting of racism when suddenly all of a sudden you realize people are treating you differently because they see you as different. And exactly. it stays with you. It's, it, it, it changes everything for you. It's like putting on a different set of glasses. So now you see it for what it is. You've graduated for university and it, it then kind of colors your, your journey as you're going into the work. Force. How did you, how did you cope with that? How did you deal with those feelings of maybe even grief or or having been lied to or you know here's Canada this multicultural welcome we want you we want all your diversity but maybe we don't want you to rent from us. Mm, that's right. So uh, that as I you know became more active and in fact when I just just started my grad 
school in U of, at U of T, I was also sitting on the board of a nonprofit small social service agency serving immigrants from uh, from uh, Chinese speaking immigrants predominantly, and most of the, them at the time are from Southeast Asia, the refugees from uh, uh, Vietnam, Cambodia, and other places, mm. where I definitely encountered you know that that racist. Um, uh, uh, portrayal and racist perception of China being Chinese, where a funder from United Way specifically told us that we don't need money from United Way because Chinese are rich. Hmm. That you don't need the money, you don't need the support from United Way. Wow. What's a million dollars to the communities? <laughs> and so those, all those um, experiences and all that insight that I, that I was accumulating made me want to do something about it. Made me want to challenge the system. Made me want to change that perception, the racist and that stereotypical uh, perception and 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 biases against Chinese and and other Asian Canadians. And that kind of activism that. I was engaging in, you know, be it trying to lobby for redress for head tax and exclusion act, trying to lobby for internationally educated nurses so that their credentials would be recognized, mm. trying to lobby for employment equity so that Chinese last name would not deny us even the, the an interview. All those activism and all those actions are my way of coping. My way of trying to um, to address my own uh, feeling of anxiety and even my guilt mm. and even my own frustration and anger and and very very much you know because uh, because those anger and frustration can easily overwhelm you and burn you yes. right mm-hmm. it can really uh, hurt you in your psyche, your mental health, your esteem and everything. In order to prevent that kind of negative emotions, I have to do something. And my way of coping is to be active. And that in a way is not only, in a way it's a self, very selfish selfish orientation, you know, that because I don't want that, that those negative feelings to overwhelm myself, to right. disable myself. Yes, you need to turn you the ability to turn it into something where you help other people is incredible. Amy, I want to talk specifically about pandemic time and anti-Asian hate. Mm-hmm. You know, we were talking about, you know, a couple of decades ago and then what you've done in activism, but you know, the the Asian Canadian community during this pandemic, we have seen an increase of what 45% of hate crimes. Uh talk to me about examples from your life and from other people that you're helping about what it has been like to live during the COVID-19 crisis, uh, violent attacks, and and some of the stories that not only you're hearing, but maybe that you've experienced as well. Mm -hmm. So the pandemic definitely has really exacerbated the anti-Asian hate. Um, 1,150 reports were filed by individuals to a portal of a a website called COVID Racism that was developed by our partner organization, as well as a Vancouver partner organization in Toronto, in like Toronto and Vancouver combined 1,150 in one year. And those are cases where people report that they have experienced either online or personal attacks, assault, um, shunning, um, or taunting. Uh, 60% of the victims are women. Most of them are 
seniors and young people, and in particular, these vulnerable groups would experience physical assaults. Eleven percent of those incidents involve physical assaults, and these 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 experiences actually are echoed not only shown by these data, but also echoed by. I have to say, every single person that I know <laughs> from my activist circle, from my family, and from my own, you know, extended network of friends, the the be it from you know、uh, my own sister walking down the street being spit at, my brother, a senior walking on the street, somebody tried to throw something at him. Good thing they were not hit, and my own、um, a niece working in the hospitals. Treating COVID patient and told by the patient that she is the one responsible for this virus. She is the Chinese. She is being Chinese. Is the one bringing that virus to Canada, and you know, and for me, you know, because we were just basically cocooned in our own, you know, little condo for the eighteen months. I had to be so conscious of where I went, even. Venturing out every time we went out, just for the weekly grocery shopping, we had to think about where to go to minimize that exposure, that risk of being targeted, targeted and being attacked. So we had to thought about, you know, sort of like you know, plan out our route、mm-hmm. uh, to try to reduce our chance. You had to change your habits, how you lived. Yes, exactly. Just to avoid that, and so you can imagine that psychological toll on every single one of them. It, it really that the 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 I can hear the anger, frustration,、mm-hmm. and the tremendous, tremendous anxiety that and fear that our communities are feeling、uh, throughout this pandemic. And we're not through it yet, Amy. Just in closing, what what would you want? To, what do you want to leave for our listeners who are hearing your stories and and relating to them? I'm calling out everybody to be allies in anti-racism, right? When we're calling allies, you know, I, I just listened to that a tremendous interview with Petrona, and we really need to see this that we are in it together, right? All Canadians were in it together. We should, we should be、uh, speaking up against anti-black racism. We all should also play a role in combating Islamophobia. Anti-Asian racism. We are all in it together, and every single one of us has a role to play. And every institution and every government has the responsibility and the power to do something and to change the system for the better. And your work is a living example of that, Amy. Thanks so much. Thank you. So that was powerful. Let me tell you why I thought that was powerful for someone. To come from a, a a space where they felt like they have been a victim for so long, to then pivot and become a leader for their community in that way—very astounding to me. Very, very powerful. I thought it was interesting just coming into it from the perspective of Pierre Elliott Trudeau touring the world, saying how wonderful Canada was, while at the same time, his Minister of Indian Affairs Jean Chrétien, nineteen sixty-nine, tabled the white. Paper, which was a paper designed to abolish treaty rights and all documents、uh, associated with Indigenous people, including any fiduciary duty attached thereto.、Um, so the irony there, so thick, I could cut it with a knife. 
Guys, this is why I love this podcast because this these are the histories that we don't get yeah. talked about in school. This is the context that we miss all the time. Uh, yet it is known within community. But I'm I'm still learning, Candy. I didn't know that because all I know is that my parents were listening to a speech she gave in Sri Lanka, and that's why they decided to come to Canada. I had no idea about that piece of it. But that's why this this podcast is so powerful and so informative. It is our story, just the untold parts. It's just this really thick line between like the country of like incredible niceness and getting here and realizing that like how how are those two things really happening in real time? I don't understand to be honest with you. It's another um, episode. I mean not that there aren't not, I guess it is. I not that there aren't nice people here, but there is also like blatant racism here as well. But that's the thing that I think a lot of people don't understand like when people get called racist, they get defensive. And I right. tell them all the time they should not be defensive because sweet, kind, intelligent, caring, loving people say and do racist things every single day. Right. So it's about that journey inside and it's about checking those things. You're raised in a certain environment and you've got blinders on because it's not your experience. So even though you, you consider yourself a kind and sweet and nice person, and, and likely you are, you have these ingrained things that yeah. cause you to think a certain way about th certain things. So I always say to people, stop being defensive when someone says you're a racist and say, why? Right. And then and then explore it and work through it, you know, the same way you would any other shortcoming that you have in your life. Right. Racism is likened to like criminality where, where it rather, rather should be looked at as more of like a, a flaw in perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Our next guest is also an activist. He actually risked his life to fight for social justice in a war-torn country, which ultimately forced him to flee. We'll hear from Esan Sadat coming up. Esan Sadat recently escaped to Canada following the Taliban's takeover of Afghanistan. Back in his home country, he was a policy researcher working with Canadian-funded NGOs an educator, and an advocate for human rights, which made him a huge target to the Taliban. After dodging three assassination attempts on his life, Hassan decided it was time to leave his home with his wife and four kids. He joins us now to share his story of asylum and the toll it's taken on his family's mental health. Thank you very much, Hassan, for being here. What a very timely and relevant story that you have to tell us, and one that needs to be heard. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for you uh, for your time and thanks for having us here. Afghanistan, uh, many people here don't even know what it's like to grow up in that country. So what is that like? I can say if anyone grew up in Afghanistan and he is still alive and he still have his legs and his eye and his uh, hands, the, he or she is a champion. Because the time that I, I burned the war start and it's about like my age is like 33 years and all the time we had fight we had bombing we had fighting and we had gunfires and still we are alive wow it's very difficult it, it sounds incredibly difficult these are things that uh people in this in many parts of the world take for granted um, and you moved within the country at some point in your life. And uh, could you just explain to us what that's like, moving from one place in Afghanistan to another? Uh, during civil war, when the Russian was defeated by Mujahideen and Mujahideen came to Kabul and they wanted to do lots of bad things with the people, my dad decided to take us from Kabul to Pakhtia. And we were 
like kids and my father had nine children and my sister were were young and and they were older than us and my dad didn't want them to be hurt by mujahideen and that's why uh, my dad decided to took us to Paktia. and when we enrolled in the school uh, we had difficulties especially i had difficulties because uh, when i was talking with the children and when we, we when we were dressed it's different that the dressing is different uh, in kabul compared to Paktia. And even our language tone and and, and 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 words are different. Even in Pashto and in Dari as well, you you can speak at different uh, words and a different voices in Paktia compared to Kabul. That's why I had difficulties. Even I received sometimes they beating me by stick. And uh, a few days ago, I looked at to my arm, and I still I have a sign of a beating. And I was thinking, wow, I am still alive. As a child, as a child, yeah, I was a child, a, being a, yeah. being, a, being a target. And then you know, we we move into your adult life where you're doing work in a country that is very hostile to the type of work you do. Tell us about the type of work and why it made you a target. When I was working for Women Right, uh, it was about NAP 1325 Monitor, an Afghanistan Right Monitor project. It was like multi-million dollar projects and funded by the European countries. Uh, I, I, went, I traveled to different provinces, provide trainings and provide uh, advocacy events and do research uh, uh, on different topics like gender, gender-based violence, uh, on uh, uh, code of conduct and uh, number of women enrollment and, uh, and the decision making at the uh, provinces, at the government offices. Later on, I understand that people were thinking about us badly because they were thinking that they are mostly working for women and they want to, they want our women to be, uh, to be on their own and. Uh, they want our women as a Western women's, and they want to change uh, women, our women's dressing. And this is not overall Afghanistan, but in some districts you can feel that. That's one part. Another part was uh, it's uh, it's for Taliban, or I can say uh, research and having data based on the data doing the advocacy, based on advocacy or based on uh, on the findings, building strategic plan or having a policy, they, they didn't trust these things. They, they didn't want these things because they are dictators and they want, the, they, they want what they want. Once again, putting a target on your back. Now, as a youth, you were targeted. And now as an adult, you're being targeted for what you do. That's That's... That's a very, very tough existence. So at some point you decided it was time to leave Afghanistan, correct? Yeah. And, wh- and what was that like, that moment? What, what, what led up to that moment? During 2021, it was March that we got a project on reaching out for peace. I found it a little bit difficult because I traveled to a lot of provinces in the side of the events, when I was talking to the people, to the elders, to the government uh, officials, they were thinking the situation is not good. 
And one day, I and my wife, with the four kids, we want. It was a close shop. It was a close restaurant. Uh, we wanted to have a pizza, and I had my children on myself. Uh, on the way to the to the restaurant, my kids were in front of me, and my wife were walking close to me. And I I just looked at to these guys, and I asked my wife, if the civil war happened. Whom should I pick first? I have four, and I don't have the ability to pick all of these. Then that sentence still it's in my it's in my mind, and my wife told me why do why are you thinking like this? Later on, on twenty five of July, I read a very good uh, news that was about Canada uh, that they accept. Uh, Special migration mission for Afghan. There, there was there was a program, and they want uh, the people that they work for Canadians. And I work for Canadian projects. I just send them an email, and I told them this is my story. Uh, this is who am I? This is what I can do. This is what I did for Canada. I told them they, uh, f- first they 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 shot my brother. Second, they they made an accident. The third, they wanted to kill me, but my wife saved me. And the fourth time, I don't know what will happen, but uh, this is the last. This this will be the last chance. A human cannot be that much lucky that he can escape for the death. Uh, and the fourth time, they will. You've gone through an incredible mental health journey, like from your young years to very recently. It is incredible to hear what you've been going through. So now you're here in Canada. Um, how How does you and your family feel being here? Kids are okay. Honestly, the four kids, they're happy and they are going to school. It's the, today was the, the the third day that they went to school and they learned words like how are you how how you how are your dad for me and my wife it will be difficult you know supporting a family a six member family is not easy in Canada yeah yeah but when I left Afghanistan I was thinking that it will be easy. In Afghanistan, I had a very good life. I had everything. I had an apartment, a very good apartment, with a, lot of, with a lot of stuff. I left all this behind, and I just came here with 22 kgs per person. I think they just need my support, uh, to be financially support. Uh, and <laughs> the first day that we came to apartment, we we had a very big refrigerator in Afghanistan, and the, my kids start pulling the refrigerator, and she says, "Oh, Dad, there is nothing in the refrigerator." <laughs> then I says, "No worries, we're going somewhere." Then we go to Costco and also Walmart. I bought them a lot of things. Then they says, "Wow, now we have the same refrigerator that we had in the past." <laughs> These things. It's not. I know maybe all of you have children or maybe not, but you know when a kid wants something, I understand. I understand, Asad. It's hard. Take your time. Your father. 
I'm a father too. And you just want to, you want to be able to give your kids and kids don't understand sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) They just don't understand. Yeah. And, mm, and you know, when they want, they want it. Then you have to do it. Your wife, is she, is she okay? She's fine. I, because she has her relatives, like her parents here in Canada. They can come to my house. We are close to each other and we can meet. She's fine. Hassan, thank you so much for sharing your story. Sorry. Yeah. No, yeah. I, 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 it, it is the, like I said when we started this, this is so relevant and so new and so fresh for you. And, and it's, you know, for a lot of us here in this part of the world, we're watching it on TV. We need to hear this. So I know it was hard to say, but thank you so much for sharing because it, it this is what we need. Not just the news reports, but we need these stories. We need to hear from you. So thank you. And I think uh, just by sharing, you're making it uh, hopefully a better place here for us as we welcome you here. Thank you. So I, I, I really don't have the, the best word to, to describe how I feel after that interview. Um, he went through things that many people don't ever see in their lifetime. That was incredible. The timing for this was so good because so many people have been watching things fold out on the news, but to hear somebody firsthand talk about him and his family, it makes it all real. And it doesn't end just because you've left a place that's in trauma because you'll come to a new place and there's new things always to be working through and unpacking. And because you're leaving in crisis and arriving somewhere, sometimes you're not dealing with that trauma until you're in a brand new place with a different culture and without any of your supports around. Really incredible. Let's unpack some of what we've just heard. We're going to hear from a psychotherapist. Sarah Ahmed's going to join us to give us some context and help us better understand all of those stories that we've just heard. We'll be right back. We just heard some incredible stories shared with us from first-generation immigrants about the barriers they have to navigate in their mental health journey, from family stigma to racism experienced at school and work, trying to start a new life as a refugee. And we heard some very different experiences from people of color and new to this country. But we also want to help you understand all of this, give you context to understand what these traumas mean, and leave you with some tools. Uh, resources that you could uh, use to take care of your mental health. And here to do that is psychotherapist Sarah Ahmed. Sarah, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So um, does moving to a new country and the disruptions that, you know, come with just that displacement, does that affect your mental health? I think it does, but I want to hear from the, uh, (laughs) the expert. Absolutely. So, you know, one of the things that we think about when uh, people are moving, especially with Hassan's story about moving from Afghanistan, and we've all seen what's been happening in the news, we look at it just big picture, like he's moved from a war-torn country to a place like Canada, where he can have access to healthcare anytime. 
But what we don't look at is the smaller things. And I think Anne-Marie shared that when Petrona was talking about my clothes look different. And, you know, that is where a lot of the change happens. Yes, the big pieces always impact us, but the stuff that really chips at us is the small day-to-day things. You know, just adjustment to the weather, the the sun hours of sunlight, uh, food that we eat, it's no longer familiar, right? We're used to eat growing up in certain types of food, and then you hit the local spot that has for me at least, Indian food, and I'm the happiest camper on the block. So things like that, changes in water, you know, in the city, the water, my, my coffee machine keeps saying change the filter because the water is so hard. Um, <laughs> traffic, language, the dialect that we speak, and just with, with you and uh, Jamar, you and uh, Petrona, just the co- code switching that was happening there, right? Yeah. Just relatability. It's just mm. these small things are huge, just absolutely huge. People don't dress the way you used to dress when you were in, in your home country and all of these things kind of isolate you and alienate you. And that really, really impacts mental health. Another uh, impact for mental health is beliefs in different cultural communities. Not every cultural community, you know, even believes in things like panic attacks or depression and don't even acknowledge them. So what are yeah. some of the barriers that you'll see in your practice? Yeah, so this is wonderful. I'm happy you brought this up, Anne-Marie, because working with predominantly a BIPOC population, one thing that I've seen, which is across, you know, all BIPOC communities is where we resonate and we're very open to hearing about physical health concerns, just not mental health concerns. So if I was to share with somebody, you know, I have ongoing back pain or a headache or just like a really upset stomach often, which is very often symptoms of anxiety, people would be very open to listening about things like that. And they would even offer, they'd be like, Hey, have you tried ginger tea? But if I was to share, you know, I'm feeling very, very anxious. Um, that would be, Hey, what are you anxious about? Like you said, you know, I used to walk 15 kilometers down to go get some water. Nothing to be anxious about here. You got water coming out, you know, from the tap, you could drink it from the bathroom too. So a good way to approach it is perhaps, you know, recognizing and identifying the physical symptoms because mental health always manifests itself physically. And so addressing those like, hey, you know, this is what's going on and that's what's going on. And that kind of gently brings somebody into, you know, warming up a conversation, a conversation about uh, a big topic that the other party actually is not even aware of. They don't know the language you're speaking. So approaching it in a manner and speaking it from a language that they are aware of would be a good way to start. So when you say that, so do you mean like if, let's say somebody in my family just does not get mental Mm -hmm. health, like a lot of my family members think if you break your leg, you go to a doctor, but if your leg's not broken, you don't need a doc. Um, How do I make sure I'm heard? Like what's the best way to to get there? Yeah. So a good way to start off the conversation is actually, like I said, addressing those physical symptoms you're experiencing and saying, Hey, you know, this is something that's going on. Yeah. I have tried the ginger tea or I have tried this. I think it might be something deeper. Or I spoke with the doctor and the doctor was suggesting that it could be this or this. And, you know, I think it might be helpful for me to get connected to a naturopath. I know, for example, my mom, when I first started talking to her about certain things, she would be much more open to me seeing, you know, a physiotherapist before I say, I got to see an actual psychotherapist. She'd be like, what do you need? We've given you everything. What do you need? You know, like we, we sacrifice our lives and came here for you. What is lacking that you need to talk to somebody else about the problems in our house? And, you know, so I would approach it that way with her. And I would, because Holistic care, mental health care is not just seeing a psychotherapist. It's also, you know, your nutrition, your movement, your sleep. And so perhaps warming it up just from accessing other supports first and then going to 
like I said, speaking that language they might not understand because they might start to kind of get it. I don't know if they'll fully understand, but that's okay because, you know, not everything is perfect. So slowly approaching it with topics that they actually understand and that are not barriers to them, like seeing a massage therapist for that ongoing pain and then suggesting that, you know, the massage therapist said that it might be something else because it's ongoing and it's not necessarily helpful to constantly keep coming for a massage because it might be a deeper issue. Not only is that a great idea, but it sounds like a medicine wheel to me. Um, so racism, discrimination, microaggressions, in my head, these things, you know, as it pertains to the immigrant experience are like twofold. Number one, you have to realize that you're you're a victim of it. Number two, maybe it's threefold. Number two, you have to actually maybe convince somebody that it's just not in your head and then it's really happening. Yeah. And then you have to deal with it or decide whether you deal with it or not. Can you tell us how that all affects someone's mental health for in, in context of the immigrant experience? Absolutely. So, you know, as we ch- touched upon earlier, being an immigrant and moving here can be a very isolating experience, right? Like the food, the weather, the water, so many changes. And what happens is when you're when you're feeling completely displaced, you start to question yourself and your identity. And a lot of people, when this continues spiraling, they also have existential questions and doubts that, you know, am I actually less than because of the color of my skin? Or historically, you know, this is what, the, you know, my, my family is known for this, or the, most of the people in my um, country are known for doing this types of jobs typically blue collar jobs. So is that all we're good for? You know, can I not be that lawyer or can I not be that physician that I've dreamed of or I've seen other people do? So all of these really go ahead and, you know, make you question many parts of just yourself. And the, the oftentimes it's very sad, but the conversation leads to, you know, am I deserving of happiness? Maybe I'm not just because of where I'm born, you know, and who I'm born, like what kind of family I'm born with or the color of the skin. And unfortunately, when we feel so displaced or misplaced, um, when we being in addition to being very alienated as an immigrant, what happens is we start to question anything and everything. And we don't have access to resources on top of that, you know, appropriate BIPOC resources you do seek out. And as Arzu shared, that ended up further traumatizing her into something even more deeper and, and, you know, perpetuates that, Uh, generational trauma that might be there and a whole bunch of other things and not being able to trust the system that you've immigrated into. Sarah, that just leads me to ask the question, once I've made my decision, I'm going to go see a therapist. How important is it that I find one that understands my culture? So when it comes to accessing therapy in BIPOC communities, it's very, very scary Because starting off, there's an internal battle, internal battle just within yourself. What's everybody going to say? Like you said, you've made that decision. I'm going to go. Now there's that little bit of that external battle. How do I hide from my mom or how do I hide from my family members when I'm accessing therapy? It feels very lonely. And that's why it's so helpful to be able to, you know, connect with somebody. Just the comfort that comes with knowing somebody um, who speaks the same language as you or the same dialect as you or knows the foods you ate growing up or, you know, a couple of the the old wives tales we all heard growing up, right? My mom used to say this, 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 or I used to walk 15 kilometers when I was your age. What are you complaining about? I think everybody's got a different uphill both ways. <laughs> everybody's got a different version of that. 
And so being able to understand that and you know what you see is essentially what was going on with Jamar and uh, and Petrona, which was that code switching piece, which builds that comfort. And, you know, like you said, home is a lot to you, your people, your community. And so just knowing that there is somebody you're accessing services from who belongs to that community shows you what your value system is. And for most people, they always want to belong. Um, and, and no matter what happens, as long as we have that sense of belonging, it always brings in a huge level of comfort and always adds in to appropriate care. Building on your point, uh, Candy, it is so important to have appropriate, culturally appropriate care in order to get right to the heart and to the help that, that people need. Sarah, it was so good to hear you say all of those things, because I think for a lot of people, that's the missing piece. I can identify mm-hmm. the racism. I can identify why it's hard. I can I know that something isn't right. How do I get help for that? And you've helped us yeah. to do that today. Thanks so much. Of course. Thank you. Canada, we know, has always been a country that likes to welcome people from around the globe. Those who move here have to deal with coming into a new culture, learning a new language, new clothes, new climate, finding a new home and being far away from the support from family and friends and even the neighborhoods they've left behind. And we get a glimpse of what that means through the stories of our guests Uh, that they shared today, which was so brave of them. We want to thank all of them for coming on the show and sharing their stories. These are tough conversations, and we appreciate the labor that goes into sharing their lived experiences. And we want to thank you for taking the time to listen today. Also, a reminder to folks that this podcast is not a substitute for therapy. And please reach out to mental health professionals if you need help. For more information on that, and what you heard on the show, head over to the podcast show notes or visit letstalk.bell.ca where you'll find links to resources, helpline numbers, and much more. And remember to subscribe and share so you know when a new episode drops. That's our episode for today. We'll see you next week with a brand new episode of From Where We Stand, Conversations on Race and Mental Health.